Thomas Tuchel must be able to get more out of his players than Arsene Wenger did five years ago at Arsenal just because they're, they're similar in ages. They can connect more. Whereas um, I don't know if there's a figure in Portuguese football who is like Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson has just walked off into the sunset at 72 having managed kids, his grandkids' age for the last couple of years. Um, is there an old man of Portuguese football now? I don't think so, actually. I think we're, we're going through that phase where we, we've got a new generation of, of quite young coaches. Um, sort of the, obviously, we've got Fernando Sanch, uh, who's, who's getting on and, and is, was, he coached, he's one of the few who coached all three of the big teams in Portugal, uh, and he's very well respected. Um, but the, but otherwise, you know, then the next one along would be Mourinho, because all of the older coaches who, who were around at the same time as Fernando Santos. Uh, you know, there's Gisualt Ferreira, who's coaching uh, Boa Vista now, but he was never, you know, he, he was liked, he was, you know, well-mannered, and he's one of those people who, who, could, who could string a, a few sentences together, and so, and so that made him relatively popular, but he never really got anywhere special. No, I don't think we, we'd have an equivalent figure in Portugal at the moment, no. And we wish Jose, not Jose, Jose Mourinho well. Uh, as he, well, he was going to embark on a job swap, but the Roma manager turned Tottenham down for, for reasons we'll never know. So Mourinho now lives in Rome, uh, and I'm sure he'll ingratiate himself and play very functional football and blame it on, I can't remember who he's going to blame it on, but it'll come up. Uh, and you were watching that game, uh, England against uh, Germany, and saw Luke Shaw, who had been frozen out by Mourinho, uh, do a quite brilliant assist uh, for the first goal. Um, so we're speaking 10 days before the final in London. Now, your brother lives in Reigate, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, has he put all the flags up and uh, got his, your nieces and nephews to sing Football's Coming Home? Or indeed, your kids <laughs> to sing Football's Coming Home? I had, I had my kids sing Football's Coming Home in the last World Cup. Um, but but no, that didn't that didn't get them very far. Um, I think my brother my brother is very passionate. He's uh, he's one of those football fans that I sometimes envy. As in, he's not interested in in clubs, but he just likes good football and he'll support the national team and he likes watching good football. So he's he doesn't have to uh, that constant heartache and stress that we all have supporting our our clubs when things go wrong. Well, we've but got our. Uh, I hope he's enjoying our back seven. Our innovative seven-zero-three formation, with two sitting <laughs> midfielders and two defensive wingbacks. Well, I'll, I'll have to ask him, but no, I don't think he's got many flags up. I know he puts up the—he'll put up his Portugal flag when when Portugal's playing, because my sister-in-law is English. Uh, my nephew will will be divided between between his his loyalties, but this time didn't have to—they didn't have to play each other. I'd like to see England, perhaps see England win this one. You know, there are a couple of teams that I that I like for no particular reason. I've always liked, I like Sweden, for example, but always had a, a, quite a few yeah. uh, good Swedish players. I, I always like Holland. And with all of those being, being out, it will be fun to see Switzerland, see if Switzerland can go any further. But I don't think anyone can really say that Switzerland is their, is their second favorite uh, national team. But it would be fun just because they're underdogs just to see, to see how they do. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I think it would be great to see England finally manage to, to win something. And to have England, uh, Portugal, and England win back to back Euros, that would be good for me. It would be fun for me. And my my family's half English, uh, so 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 yeah, that would that would be fun. Absolutely, because uh, one thing's for sure: 
England aren't going to win in Qatar. I'm of the opinion that we should just play the under-12s for the qualifying tournament, lose 10-0 every game, not go to Qatar, and then English football won't be ruined for the season after next. So we're going into the season 2021-22, the post-pandemic season, which means another round of the Portuguese Cup. So some of these clubs in the Azores will take a 1,000 miles to Jamor. Your journey into Portuguese football, did it change you as a human being? Oh, it, it, changed, it changed me as a football fan. It, it gave me uh, much more appreciation for, for smaller clubs because in Portugal it is very, very much the big three. Befica, Sporting Porto, Befica, Sporting Porto, all the time. That's all it's about, you know, all the newspapers and so on. So it gave me a lot of appreciation for, for those who really follow and are really passionate about their local clubs. Uh, and because we, we very rarely get have much contact with them. Um, and so because if you know Befica will go and play in the far north of Portugal and the stadium will be full of Befica fans because there are Befica fans all over the country. And of course their local fans will be there, but we know that perhaps 90% of their local fans, if they're supporting their local team that day, it's because they also support Sporting or Porto because if they're Befica fans, they'd be on our side. So, so it, it, it does, it can become quite tempting to just look at, at everything everything through the lens of the big three and so to meet fans who were really passionate about their local team in Les Choynes or Tondela or places like that that are usually quite off the, uh, far off the grid great it was a great experience to be able to to share that passion with them watch the game in the stands with them celebrate the goals with them and uh, and then capture some of that for and some of their stories for the book so yeah that was that was good um, it was a very humbling experience I can tell you that to to go and and be at the final on the day of the final I didn't actually get tickets for the game because one of the things I explained in my book is the the, fine, the venue for the final is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful, but it's small. It seems that the, the comparison is, you know, Forest Green Rovers, which is run by um, an environmentally friendly vegan millionaire. Um, that You have to walk up a hill in a village called Nailsworth to get to the stadium, and they want to build a carbon-neutral stadium. Uh, just reading about the, the stadium in Jamor, um, even the back cover said it's amid a dense forest and you don't watch yeah. the game but uh, you're familiar with Hemman Hill in Wimbledon at the All England Club when fans just go oh. and watch a big screen because they can't get inside centre court that's the vibe I seem to oh, get oh, yeah. describing yeah, yeah, yeah. describing the atmosphere you say there's the festive spirit this unique ambience of the cup final so this is it's like what the FA Cup used to be. It's the spirit of Portuguese football can be found at Jamor. Yeah, I think, I think definitely. I think definitely. And to go and watch the final when the final was actually, and for the first time in 12 years, the final was between two of the big clubs and it was, it was Porto against Sporting. And so this is the game where any other year people would have asked me, oh, you know, so who do you want to win? And I'd always say the Meteor. You know, this this year I'm I'm rooting for the meteor. Just you know, meteor land right in the middle and, and just wipe everyone out. Obviously, it's a joke. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. But yeah, the, but uh, but this year I was there. You know, I had to I had to go. I had to mingle with the fans, and I've got friends who are Spartan fans and friends who are Porto fans. So I, as far as possible, I met up with them and had some beers with them, and it was good. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was it was interesting being in that in that atmosphere and recognizing everything because I've been there before. It's just everyone is different and the colors are different. 
um, and none of my none of my football friends are there. It's it's it's, it's strange almost to, to to think that this exists beyond uh, what I see from uh, every every weekend or every every fortnight when I go to when I go to football games. So, but uh, but as I said, it was humbling because um, because I had to write a final chapter. I couldn't just dish the book because uh, in a sulk because Benfica weren't there, and uh, and at the, but at the same time I didn't really care who, who won the game, so so I could actually be completely neutral and just enjoy my time there and and make make the best of it. Which yeah, um, made for a good book. Uh, I won't tell you who won just in case you want to read and not know, but it was an exciting final. It was, yeah, it definitely was. It was an exciting final, yeah. And since then, uh, last season, I've just looked at the league table, Porto lost two games all season, Sporting lost one, and the two games that occurred in the league both ended in draws. So they are quite evenly matched. Sporting will go into the Champions League. I don't know if Porto have to qualify for the Champions League next year, if they're uh, second. Um, I think I don't think they need to qualify. I think they get in directly. Okay, so we, it's we Benfica who have to qualify. We'll need to go through a couple of, yeah, we'll need to go through qualifiers. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in the UEFA Cup, which I still call it, it's Braga who finished fourth. And Pacos de Ferreira, do they go into UEFA Cup? Yeah, that's Passus, where the, the ski has a Thank city, you. so it's Passus de Ferreira, yeah. Passus. Yeah. yeah, I've always called them Pacos. Um, and it's good to see uh, Tondela uh, in the first league in Portugal. Tondela are one of the places you go to uh, in this uh-huh. book, um, which... But it's published by Pitch. When you pitched pitch the idea, um, did you realise their reputation for these hidden football stories? I didn't. I didn't at the time. I know to be honest. Um, I I looked up a list of of uh, football publishers, football book publishers in England, and I fired off emails. Uh, pitch were the only, not the only ones to get back to me, but the only ones who who said, "Look, you know, this definitely looks like like we could do work work." do something with this so so let's talk more about it and as you said earlier um i'd always wanted to try and make this a book in english as well being bilingual that was there that, that would have been easier but i knew that if i left it until the end and i started translating it then at the end uh, as one block it would i'd get lazy about it and, and and keep postponing it so since i usually had about one month between between chapters because i try and write the chapter as quickly as possible after each game I would write the chapter first in Portuguese and then translate it into into English. Occasionally adapt one 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 thing or other in for for the English version, but but that's the way I did it. So when I contacted them, it wasn't just you know I've got this book, I can translate it for you if you like. I I had a finished product, which I think made it made it easier. But yeah, it was it was it was definitely a great privilege to to be published in English. The the feedback I've had has been fantastic. Uh, there was, uh, as I said before, there was nothing like this in nothing like this about Portuguese football in English, not in Portuguese, let alone in English. Uh, so, so I'm hoping also that I've opened up the the gates for for more people to to follow suit. Um, let's see. And uh, and you were saying you've been trying to read up on on clubs from outside of England. One of my sort of one of my. Uh, Type dreams is to write a, a book about Benfica, but also about, as I said, or you know, about the culture of the club, about the 
the club as a whole, you know, the fans, the culture, the the, the nishtika that we talked about earlier, and not just a general book of statistics about uh, about the football side of the club. Uh, and to do that in English, I think that could be that could do quite well, sort of amongst tourists. We have so many people visiting the stadium. Uh, who knows if I'll, maybe I'll have time to, to get down to that as well. Well, yes, amongst the six children that you have, you've also got responsibilities yes. writing about God and stuff. Um, you've yes. written for the tablet, among <laughs> others. And your, your office is in Lisbon. I will, I'll try and pronounce uh, the newspaper that you work for. It begins with an R. It's in the, uh, the first chapter of your book, because you walk back. Renascensa. That's not bad. That's not bad. Rebirth. Yeah, resurrection. It's Chemeshesa uh, is uh, is actually it's a it's a media group, but its main focus is radio. So oh. it's it's, uh, it's mostly radio. Although I work, I do some radio, but I work mostly for the website. So do for the online news. So yes, most of my day to day work is is writing for the website, but occasionally some radio thrown in as well. And just to check, you don't work Sundays. Uh, I work weekends. I work weekends occasionally. Once a month, more or less. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. And on the seventh day, God decided to do a bit of housekeeping in the morning. Um, but yes, you've also, I'm fascinated by another book that you've written, which I can't read unless I've got a dictionary, but there's a BBC Radio 4 show called Across the Red Line, where, and the idea is to get people of opposing views to outline their views and then try and understand with a conflict mediator to understand each other's point of view by using very conflict-friendly language, i.e. I understand what you're saying, I take your point. And you have got an MSc in Forgiveness and Conflict Resolution. I, I don't know if it did inform your book, which I'm going to pronounce, Que Fazes I Fechada, um, which is all about nuns. Um, so uh, can you yeah. just, in, in a, a minute or so, uh, your experience writing the book and also getting your Conflict Resolution Master's? That book was, it was actually pitched, the idea was pitched to me by the publisher. Great. It was based on a Spanish book that exists, uh, which is obviously a very, very similar idea. The, the idea is I, I interviewed eight different nuns from different orders and, and who work in different fields. So I had from the cloistered nun uh, who, who never leaves her convent um, to the nun who works with uh, prostitutes uh, counseling and dealing with prostitutes and trying to trying to get women off the streets. Um, so you know a huge range of uh, a variety of, um, of vocations and, and services. That was a uh, was a lot of fun to do. It was a, lo- a lot of fun to write, and it was a very intense experience as well. And that was that was quite a successful book, you know, for for a market like like the Portuguese, which obviously isn't isn't huge. Um, it, I didn't go so much into the into the conflict resolution part. The, the, the my my master's uh, thesis was the idea came up when I I've always been very interested in in religion not not only personally because I am a, I am a man of faith and I'm a practicing Catholic but because um, the the phenomenon of religion as a social uh, player is something that interests me uh, very very deeply and and the, the way that religion can drive people to do from the most wonderful things to commit the most, you know, the, the worst atrocities, all of that, and and even the rationalities of, of it sometimes is something that I find fascinating. So I've always been interested in that, and I was doing my my masters in uh, in history and theology of religions when um, soon after after I was married, I went to I was in I remember I was in Vietnam, 
for a holiday with my wife. We'd been to visit my brother, lived in Hong Kong at the time, and then we went to spend a couple of nights in Hanoi. And that was when I heard about the um, the Amish, the massacre of those Amish school children in uh, in Nickel Mines in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man who, who broke into an Amish uh, school and uh, and killed a number of girls. Uh, he he sent all the boys out of the schoolroom, but he killed a number of girls. It, it, it was horrifying. As in, obviously, any school shooting is horrifying. But in this case with the Amish, it just seemed particularly horrifying because of all that they represent in terms of pacifism and uh, the way of life that they lead. Um, it was it was particularly grotesque. But what shocked many people and what shocked the world at the time was the the reaction of the Amish themselves, of the community, and the way they said their first response was to say, we forgive. And uh, and to go to the family of the murderer, obviously, you know, they're this is not collective guilt. So he, the fa- his family had nothing to do with what he did. And they made a point of going to try and console the family of the man who'd killed their children and their, and their grandchildren. And when people started, because some of the kids survived and but were left with, with, uh, with horrendous injuries, when, um, when people from across the world started saying they wanted to donate money to try and help uh, pay for medical expenses and so on, uh, the Amish said, well, this very goes very much against our 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 nature to to accept this sort of thing this sort of uh, charity but we will do so provided half of the money goes to support the family of the of the murderer who mm-hmm. who had then committed suicide and so had left their his children his wife a widow and his children orphaned what struck me at the uh, then was you know I'm I'm a christian I was raised a christian the importance of forgiveness has always been been drilled into us but I was struck by the way that this was such an automatic response. So I thought my question was, is it possible to create a culture in which forgiveness is your go-to response when there is offense? The Amish have done it. Is it possible to do it generally? Because, of course, the Amish live a very secluded life. So maybe that's what allows them to to, to do this. So that's what I was trying to explore. Uh, And then also uh, apply that to international relations and conflict resolution. So would it be possible to use this in uh, in conflict resolution? Would it be possible to do so in, in conflicts that oppose uh, people from different religions? And one of the very interesting things that I discovered uh, doing this thesis is that although we often speak of Judeo-Christian values, in fact, the Christian understanding of forgiveness and the Jewish understanding of forgiveness are quite different. Yeah. And then the Muslim and then the Muslim understanding of forgiveness again is is different from those two. So that poses an obstacle. And so that it was fascinating to delve into that and to and to really and to um, examine all of that. Yeah. And, and I hope you got graded very well for it and you were able to to argue it. I admire. A lot of things about this book, 1,000 Miles to Jamor, A Journey into Portuguese Football. But there was one thing that leapt out of me. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Gray's books, which are kind of prose poems on or lyrical prose about football, the glorious things about football. And when you say that there are a few things more moving than floodlights, uh, I thought, well, I think Daniel Gray will have an audience for this. Now, I wonder if this is something to do with god or the spirit in you but again i'm the same whenever i see because i'm i can see vicarage road football ground from my window and whenever the floodlights are on i do think ah there's a game there uh, even if it's just the under 18s 
the nature of flood football, yeah, which again, I, I, in 1966, there wasn't much of that. But I, I just wonder if there's a kind of Christian feeling to what you sense. You literally I, I see the light. I, I remember I remember seeing the floodlights and that think and that phrase coming into my mind and I thought I've got to put this in the book and I was teased about it by at least one of my friends um, who sort of said to my wife oh you know sorry and if if what you, if you are if your husband's idea of romance is, is floodlights um, but the but there are a couple of, a couple of things there uh, I've never associated it to spirituality no um, although you know there's always a spiritual dimension to things that touch you. Uh, you know, the, the go to, to the heart of your emotions. So in that sense, perhaps. But there's there's that, and there's another thing that I always link to that. Has it ever happened to you? You're walking past a school, and the kids are in recess. They're they're during the, it's their break, and obviously, you know, kids all over the world in their break they play football. So they're kicking a, a football around, or they're kicking a can. Sometimes you can't even see them, but you can hear the screaming. Yeah. And it's happened to me a couple of times. I'm walking past, and suddenly you hear goal. <laughs> And the feeling, you know, it's just kids playing in, in, the, in, their, in their playground, but immediately get this feeling of elation. It's like, ah, yes. Um, it's, it's, um, I, I have, you know, those two occupy a similar place in, in, my, in my heart. Um, but the floodlights, there's another story about the floodlights, which I've never spoken about publicly. Um, and I don't think I can get into trouble about it now anymore. But when the... When Befica's old stadium, which I sort of very much grew up in, I started going to football quite late because no one in my family was very interested in football. My father wasn't. And so I had no one to take me to games. Uh, so I only started going when I could go by myself when I was about 14 or 15. And um, and that was the Befica's old stadium, uh, the, the, the old Stade de Luz, as we, as we called it. And, um, and so that was my, you know, that was where I cut my teeth in terms of being a football fan. And when the stadium was torn down to build this new one, it was it was obviously a very emotional moment. And we went to a final game against it was against Nacional de Madeira, and we, we won the game one nil with the penalty. But then there was a huge party afterwards. There was a celebration. There was a concert, and we we were there until until the stewards finally kicked us out. So it must have been about three or four in the morning. We were I was literally one of the last fans to to leave the pitch. And we all carried clumps of grass home in our pockets, and we took seats from the stands to back back home with us. But during that evening, those the, that stadium had those massive concrete floodlights that sort of look like like uh, dinosaur heads peering over the stadium. And at one point, I walked past one of the floodlights outside, and it was open. The door was open, and I thought, "Oh, you know, this is something I've never done before." So I so I snuck in. There was no one looking, and I climbed all the way up to the top. And then I took a photograph of myself right up at the top, and then I went back down again. And then I and then I thought, "Wait a second, I, I'd already left." And I thought. Where do they turn the floodlights on? There has to be there has to be a switch there somewhere. You know, they don't. They, it's not centralized because this is all quite old. So I went back in and I found the switch, but of course it was like two two layers below the actual floodlight. So I, I took I, I it was this huge lever and I pulled it down and I could hear suddenly you know, the electricity buzzing and I thought, oh, have I done it? And so I climbed back up and the lights were on, and so I climbed back down, turned them off again, ha ha ha, and then I got a phone call from someone saying. I know you're up there. Get out quickly. The police are coming. So, so I ran down as fast as I could. And I, I got out sort of just before, as I walked out and I sort of blended out, I saw them running in. So I managed to get away with it. Well, but then spoke to, my, spoke to friends and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, the floodlight suddenly came on for no reason. And, then, and that was me. So that was like one of my big moments at the, at the farewell uh, of the of Fika's old stadium. So, yeah, floodlights are, 
Well, most especially, definitely. Well, you've got the prologue to your book on Benfica. You just need 80,000 more words about this club. You've got to write it. I know you can, you've got six willing... I know your youngest is three, but you've got six willing uh, people you've just stated. Although the other thing that I gather you do, and uh, Lisbon is right on the water. Uh, it looks... I, I think we flew into Lisbon and then went on to Villa Vita Park on the Algarve, near where Madeleine McCann and her family were based. But this body surfing, it, Watford is landlocked. We, we're not near the sea, so I'm not very aquatic. But uh, do your eldest children body surf with you? Yes, yes, they do. Not in the big waves yet, but uh, my oldest son is 14, and he's uh, this year he's really sort of had that leap and started to get bigger. So, so he'll be he'll be able to join me in the in the bigger waves soon enough. My, my wife always makes fun of me when I say this, but I I've um, I decided last year that I should prepare my midlife crisis so that I don't do anything stupid. Good. Uh, my my idea was everyone everyone's going to go through a midlife crisis, and so you might as well have it prepared and and keep your your objectives low, your goals low, so that you don't suddenly freak out and buy a Porsche and divorce your wife. Uh, so so I've been doing that. But one of the things that that I suppose is part of that midlife crisis is. Every year, I wonder if it's going to be the last year that I get to go out into the big waves to body surf. Because I remember my father always enjoyed uh, catching waves, body surfing. You know, at the time, it was just just very basic. Uh, he'd uh, sort of barrel down the waves with us and uh, no, no wetsuit, no flippers or anything. But And then we sort of started doing it more seriously. But I remember the day that we all went out to catch some waves. And suddenly, my father, who's a big man and has asthma and was overweight and he suddenly felt that he was out of his depth and and he needed help getting back in and and we easily helped him back but that scared me you know made me think when is this going to happen to me when which is the day which is actually going to be my last day going out and every year i wonder is this is this it is this the year that i'm going to feel i'm going to try and make it out and i'm not going to be able to and i'm just going to come back and think that's it you know i'm I'm not going to have the courage to do it anymore so i've set a goal that i want to at least have one day in the big waves with my son and then, you know, sort of after that, if I have to hang up my flippers and, and only catch the smaller surf, then, then then that will be fine. But yeah, body surfing is, for those who, who don't know, sort of the, the, the younger, more despised uh, relative of surfing. Oh, you know, surfing, obviously, stand-up surfing is king of the water sports. Do and we call it boogie boarding? Also, yeah, boogie boarding. Yeah. Uh, but then there's uh, body surfing is special because you have nothing to support you. There's oh, no you don't have a leg tie? No, 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 no. There's no, there's no board. There's no board. And so, so you said boogie boarding. That's, but that's bodyboarding. That's with the board. Body surfing is different. Body surfing is just you and the wave. That's it. So it's catching waves with your body. Uh, your body is the flotation device. So you're lying down, cu- uh, cutting across the waves, and you're trying to do, trying to get as far as you can. It's obviously much shorter lived than than surfing because you can't, you know, you can't catch waves for minutes and minutes on end. But the experience is very intense because it's just you in the water. You know, possibly a wetsuit, possibly your, your flippers. If they're bigger waves, then you'll be safer if you've got flippers on. But otherwise, that's it. Uh, which is why I say, you know, this thing of, of it might be the last time I go mm. out. Because if you run into trouble when you're body surfing, you know, you, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> because, <laughs> because 
unless someone goes to help you, you know, and so and so you have to you have to know what you're doing. You have to be very confident. You have to understand the the water and understand the ocean. I I have a lifeguarding course, so and I've been doing this for a long time. So so I feel quite comfortable in in the ocean. It's it's a lot of fun and it's a very very intense experience because the comparison would be, uh, you know, rock climbers. They're, yeah, they're free those climbing. guys who do. Yeah, free climbing with no ropes. The difference is that when you're body surfing, if you get into trouble, you don't automatically die, which is what happens when yes. you're when you're when you're a free climber. Correct. So you just wipe out. Exactly. There's a bit more leeway for for mistakes. It's a, a wonderful experience, and it's one of my passions. It's one of the things that that I really really enjoy doing, and that I'll make an effort to do as much as I can. Uh, which is difficult when you have a large family. Um, but yeah, I, I try. I try my best. Well, that's good. And. I'm looking for things to decorate. I'm looking for pictures to decorate the football library with. So as well as pictures of, I don't know, Ronaldo leaping 10 foot in the air. I think it'd be quite good to have some of these images that I'm now looking at, having just typed body surfing uh, into yeah. my favourite search engine. Um, but yeah, that's great because, yeah, I, I can make it into some kind of metaphor about how we're all just surfing the waves of life with no boogie boards <laughs> But that would be that would be quite sententious and uh, something that you could do as your your role in in religion correspondent. So the last thing to say to you, apart from obrigado, um, Felipe de Villes, Felipe de Villes, is this next book. Um, I don't know when it's going to come, but um, Benfica are celebrating. Is it next year or twenty or in three years time? When did Benfica win the European yeah. Cup? Oh, the European Cup? No, yeah, that was uh, this year. We celebrated uh, 60 years. Oh, what was the celebration? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> Party poppers, poof, and then just kind of... Not, not much, on. no. Uh, unfortunately, not much. Um, I surprised my wife by buying a, a print made by a couple of, uh, of independent Benfica fans of Jose Aguas holding up the trophy, and uh, which I framed and, uh, and hung upstairs outside my bedroom, much to her shock and horror. But but she's she's let me keep it up. But no, not there wasn't much uh, official okay. celebration. I'm with with COVID and, and and all that. I'm. They think they probably wouldn't have remembered to celebrate it anyway. But then again, you know, I'm a skeptic, and as I've said, I'm I'm quite upset with the current uh, board of uh, of Bifika. But the but I remember when when it was the 50th anniversary, uh, they didn't do anything either, and and it's a shame. Uh, it is a shame because. The way football is at the moment, who knows when we'll have another opportunity. We made a couple of Europa League, of, uh, of, uh, Europa League finals uh, a few years ago, which you know we lost both. But then again, as if you know anything about Benfica, you'll know we're cursed by one of our former coaches, so we're destined not to win any European titles for, for 100 years. So I think that leaves another 40 years to go. But yeah, who knows when we'll win it again. And the, when we did win it, we were the first to win it after Real Madrid. Uh, when Real Madrid had won it for five years in a row. We beat a very, very strong Barcelona. The next year, we beat a very, very strong Madrid, you know, with Puskas and, and, and all. And so, uh, so yeah, it's, you know, it's something that should be celebrated. It's, it's a huge part of our heritage. Uh, but instead, they seem to be focusing on revamping our logo so that it's easier to print in, uh, in Thailand and to sell to mm. Chinese and South Korean tourists. So you see, that's, that's a metaphor, if ever I were. And hopefully you'll be able to reduce that to a footnote in your book about Benfica. Um, yeah, hopefully. Which, and the thing is, the 
good thing about Portuguese football, which, you know, it, it might hold us back sometimes, but it's something that, like the Germans, we, we don't want to let go of, is that the, the final word is, is, is the members, the fans, or the, the socios of the club. We vote, we can vote out one board, we can vote in another, and they, will, they can't make a decision like this without getting it through a general, a general meeting. We can vote it down. And I don't see them getting it through a general meeting. And uh, so hopefully, you know, we won't have anything like that ridiculous new Juventus uh, logo or, or anything like that. And we we just wish they'd understand that if they want to sell shirts in uh, in China and Japan and South Korea, it might be a good idea to start winning games instead, instead of uh, instead of selling all our good players at the beginning of the year and playing our uh, young youngest players in the Champions League just to try and, and sell them quickly as well. So we end up leaving our group with zero points, which is what happened a couple of years ago. It was ridiculous. Nonsense. And the best place to go for news about Portugal, you mentioned this, page 190. Tom Kund... Um, God, I don't even know how to pronounce Tom's name. Portugal is the website. <laughs> Kunder? Yes. Kundert? Kundert? Kundert. Tom does a great job. It's one of the, the fun things I discovered writing writing my book is this sort of this network of, of English and, and, and other foreign... Uh, Portugal football fans. It's it's quite fun. Uh, these are guys who have really. Tom lives in Portugal. He's married to a Portuguese woman, but a lot of them uh, don't really have any any special relationship with Portugal. Yet they they fell in love with the team for some reason or other, and and with Portuguese football, and they found a, a way to um, make a name for themselves, tweeting and, and writing about it. It's uh, yeah, good for them. What a shame! Uh, Tom is a sporting fan. <laughs> I just wanted to. Just to finish, uh, this is a quote from your book, uh, A Thousand Miles to Jamor. This is from the, the final chapter, or the chapter of the final. I'm not sure you can call them packed lunches. There are roast pigs, wine, beer, barbecues all over the place. And walking through the woods, you get kind of get that smell of the meat roasting. Everyone's out to have a good time. It's funny because Portuguese football is so angry most of the time with itself. There's so much bitterness and accusations, especially between the big clubs. But on the cup final day, people just seem to put that to one side, at least for the day, just to make it the Festa de Tassa. And it really is a day of celebration. That's the spirit of football. Uh, and that can be found in Philippe de Villers' book, 1,000 Miles to Jamor, published by Pitch. Obrigado. Thanks, Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom.